Hi friends! Welcome to the Oscillator Stone Podcast. Today's guest is a transformational sorcerer and former cult leader, quote-unquote, who has employed the tools of esoteric magic and tantra with hundreds of professionals, fringe dwellers, and entrepreneurs to uncover the sacred core of their own being. Without further ado, here is Michael Author. So welcome, Michael Author, um, to the Oscillator Stone podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Scout. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm well, you know, there's always a lot moving and I'm here now. <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice and succinct and, uh, and relatable. Um, so today we're going to be talking about cults and culture together. Um, I want to ask you as a former cult leader, do you have any insights on what the difference between a cult and just like a niche counterculture is? You know, there's something about the term cult that kind of really gets people a bit um, freaked out. And so what's what's the deal with that? And are all cults dangerous? Um, Well, I'll answer the the last question that you asked first. And um, no, not all cults are dangerous. Um, And however, what differentiates a cult from a niche subculture? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we can look back at the historical use of the word cult, right? Oftentimes it was used as an indication of almost a religious sect that was, um, that was focused around a particular deity or something like that. So for example, the cult of Mithra, right? Was um, a collection of, of, people particularly within the Roman Empire who venerated um, venerated the god Mithra, a kind of a people have later ca- called him a, like a sort of a Jesus-y like, like figure. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, the cult of Isis and various mystery cults uh, throughout history. Um, but I think what people are often more familiar with is the, the idea of the, the you know, the Jonestown, um, you know, sort of sort of thing, the prototypical cult with the charismatic leader that, um, you know, kind of uh, brainwashes its its people into submission to an ideal. Um, and I, I think that, that would be an example of a dangerous cult. However, I think what differentiates a cult is usually that there is a particular object surrounding which the culture is formed. It's, it's an object, a deity, or like a, a principle that that is, or even a kind of a guru that it uh, that it organizes itself around. Mm-hmm. That's how I would define it. Some people just like to say the word cult basically just means a culture. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that's I've heard that on a number of occasions. I don't typically tend to take that stance myself, mm-hmm. but yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that answer right. your question? Yeah, it does because I think of um, one of the definitions of cult one of the more scholarly definitions of cult is that it is countercultural um, in a very particular way where, so there's something relatively ironic about counterculture itself, where it, where it, it, it is almost sort of mainstream in its um, rebellion against what is mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a cult, there's, there's often elements of secrecy or in-group, like it's a very, it's a very particular sort of in-group, out-group yeah. dynamic that plays mm-hmm. out in the context of a cult where um, 
the religiosity is very much intertwined with like the intimacy between the members. They know something that the outside world doesn't know. Yes. There's something really special about them. And so it's not just necessarily the organizing principle that you're speaking about, but it's like the specialness yes. of said organizing principle and the people who can recognize the value of it that I'm and seeing in cults. And that it has the potential for danger, but doesn't necessarily imply danger. Correct. And I've also noticed that in cults, there are typically initiation rituals into the cult, which create that feeling of specialness, because there's a shared experience that's so outside of the realms of anything that most people normally experience that it creates a sense of unity. among them. Hmm. So would you say that there's something intrinsic to human nature that um, being in a cult sort of speaks to? And is that why, you know, we've been um organizing in cults for for so long and if so what is that what is that sort of uh human well, nature thing element what i've found is that people who are drawn to cults are often um people who have a particular wound surrounding family and belonging um mm. and that uh it, particularly those who are caught into abusive cults um, uh, you know, we'll often have a very deep wound surrounding this. Um, uh, however, I think we all like to feel as if we belong um, mm -hmm. somewhere. We have a deep need for tribe and community. And especially for those who are lacking that in their lives, a, a cult or even on a different train, a religion can provide that, um, that feeling of deep belonging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I wonder if, I don't know statistically if this is true, but I do, it makes me wonder if um, the, what boomers like to call um, millennials, I mean, technically I'm not a millennial, but um, boomers like to say that millennials are like spoiled because of the participation trophies or something like that, which is, you know, funny because I never got a participation trophy. I was almost just exclusively criticized for not. Oh man, that. and how's so, your sense of self-worth doing now? Oh, it's fabulous. Thank you for asking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but on a serious note, um, but I did have the like gifted child, I do have gifted child syndrome where it's like yeah. they didn't know I was neurodivergent. They just knew that I was really good at two things and couldn't do other things. Mm -hmm. Um, but I digress. Um, boomers like to poke fun at millennials for like, oh, everybody wants to be special. Everybody wants to be recognized or what have you. And, and it's interesting that that's like a, a thing that is being attributed to a particular age group uh, or generation when I feel as though every generation has their own way of, 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 of expressing that, that innate desire to kind of be recognized for your uniqueness. Um, and, you know, I wonder if we, I, I've seen posts, I've seen articles, I've seen lots of, um, of stuff more recently around um, spiritual, um, sort of spiritual organizations and spiritual abuse, mm -hmm. which is one of those things that's very tricky to unravel. It's not as you know, black and white as somebody just ran up to you and assaulted you, you know, it's, you know, it's so multifaceted. There are so many layers to it. Um, you know, it starts well, psychologically um, and then often escalates over time. So I'm just curious if 
younger people are more susceptible to this um, due to kind of cultural differences, generation, cultural generational differences, or if, um, like, is this, is this problem increasing in its impact or has it always kind of just been a problem? Well, it's, it's hard to say um, because we live in an age where people, connection is so much easier to, um, to create. We can just type a message to anyone, anywhere, all over the world. Um, and so it, it almost has a sense these days that any wound that you have um, is going to get activated and you're not going to just ha not happen to stumble across it because you live somewhere that's not near anyone who, who would activate it. So I think the people who are like meant to find cults now can um, mm -hmm. very easily. So uh, is it becoming a bigger problem? Well, I mean, you could look at like, for example, a high profile thing recently has been the teal swan thing, you know, mm. you've been following that at all. I haven't I watched haven't, actually. I stopped caring about Teal Swan almost six years ago. <laughs> right. But you and I both know who Teal Swan is. Right. You know, and so this is a person who who's reached millions and millions and millions of people and has created a, um, you know, basically a cult of personality around herself. Um, and it's just, and there's there's many other of these like internet gurus who have formed formed cults around them and some of them have been taken down like um swami nichananda was another mm -hmm. one recently who um indian a cult leader who was very popular in the west and and actually know a couple of people who were involved in his cult um that um you know that the whole thing disbanded but a lot of damage was really done in that in that cult um, the teal swan thing is a little less cut and dry um, mm. But is it becoming a bigger problem? I think it's always, it, it's in the United States at least, and I can't speak to other, other countries. It's been, a, it's been a problem for, I, I mean, honestly, I think that there are probably some ways in which our nation was founded by um, cult-like um, uh, or at least extremely strong religious um, origins. So, I mean, I think it's probably always been an issue. I, I'm not qualified to say whether it's becoming bigger or smaller or whether young people, I'd say that people who are a little bit younger tend to be more susceptible because they just have less, less life experience. Right. In but general, yeah. Things. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I know that that question was a little bit vague i wasn't really expecting a specific answer so i appreciate you going for it <laughs> trying to uh, yeah do my best yeah yeah so um all right so let's get a little bit more personal then let's talk about your experience as a former cult leader what kind of cult did you uh lead and what happened it was a sex cult oh only the best kind yeah no no so <laughs> So uh, I think I need to tell a little bit of a backstory to this um, because so the reason I, I set out to form a quote unquote sex cult with my then partner, Emily, um, was because I had noticed and I've had my like, you know, I, I've been interested in cults my whole life. And I had some personal experience with what some people would call sex cults, but they did not call themselves a sex cult. Right. Um, they would have called themselves, a, a, you know, a spiritual, sexual, shamanic organization. Actually, I I'd had my fingers in two to three of them at various times. 
Um, but I actually, I went to one and my experience of it was very, was very mixed. Actually, I went to two and my experience was very mixed. Um, I am not a joiner by, um, by disposition. Uh, however, I had at that time in my life, a particular need for sexual healing. And I noticed that within the cult that I went to, uh, there was no separation between the people who were facilitating or leading the experiences. Like this is like a week long immersion into basically this sexual shamanic experience. Um, and there was no separation in terms of like the leaders could theoretically have sex with the students. And I found myself um, uh, totally triggered out of my gourd by this, right? It was, um, and I was questioning uh, the ethics of it. And, you know, I'd been investigating this for, for many years and I, and I really came to the conclusion for myself that I don't believe there's a way to hold a, a container where the people who are in the positions of power and the people who are looking to them for teachings or for um, a guidance can, main, can have sexual relationships like those two those two things to me I didn't I didn't believe that was that was an ethical thing so mm -hmm. I went to uh, create a sex cult right so basically a community centered around um, centered around sexuality um, with two charismatic leaders my then mm -hmm. partner and I um, uh, to create it in which there would be like more of a uh, differentiation um, there and a view to um, I basically just had a whole different trip surrounding it than the, than the cult that I went to just because I believed that if I was going to criticize this cult that I needed to actually take a stab at trying to create something of my own in that capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was why, why we um, we created what was called the Super Secret Open Love Collective, um, uh, which was something that we specifically said that we would not talk about on social media while it was going, and that all members would remain anonymous. Um, so we created this uh, at its height. I think we reached around 75 people who were regularly coming to meetings. It was digital and in person. And we launched with an in person event, which included. Um, a play party. So for those of you who are not familiar, it's a, it's a facilitated space where sexuality is available and open to be shared amongst the partygoers or participants. Now, um, we didn't really like to call it a, a play party just because we like to make it a little more mystical and magical. So our first event was called the Super Secret Magical Playground. Um, <laughs> and we had, um, we created some really peak experiences there. We had a, um, uh, we had a community ritual we had like a, a shibari uh, artist come in and do a public suspension we had um a a, a pool a kiddie pool that we fill that we had um two naked women go into and we had them play three food games um including uh you know basically dumping spaghetti on one another um uh, fencing with french bread and uh, then um, smashing each other in the in the face with pies, um, and th there was a lot of other stuff that happened. We had like you know a 
blacklight body painting set up. Mm -hmm. We had all sorts of stuff there. So that, that was kind of the, the entrance into it. And from there, we kind of found our core group of people who we gathered to uh, meet regularly. Um, because one thing that I noticed with a lot of these um, sexuality communities, it, it tended to be event focused and loose community driven rather than like consistent, dedicated connection where you get to know every person over time. So we created that. Um, it was a lot of fun. Lasted about, well, it's still going technically, but I'm not involved in it. Mm. So that wow. was the that was the experiment that that I went on. Um, and from that, I really determined that um, running, a, I was a terrible sex cult leader. Um, <laughs> by that, I just mean, I honestly, I had no desire to have sex <laughs> it was, you know, with, with anyone besides my partner, really, when I was a part of that sex cult. Um, and uh, I just, and the other people in the container just seemed like way more energized about the sexuality component than I was. I liked the community ritual and belonging component, but I, you know, the sex, I could take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's kind of where I arrived at with the whole thing. Hmm. I want to just quickly point out, um, because just because this, um, this podcast is sort of centered around the inquiry, inquiry of what um, metamodern esoteric spirituality looks like. So I just want to point out how wonderfully metamodern um, a like sex cult that's not really a cult yeah, is. really a cult yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> i remember that you you know you talked about it like using the term on facebook using the terminology fake cult and so um before i get into my next question i just wanted to point out the sort of authentically performative and can sincere. i interject yeah yeah okay so um we actually incorporated many components of a cult so mm -hmm. we required that they could not talk to their friends about the cult. Mm -hmm. um, we required an application process. Uh, re we required a high financial investment to join. Um, we required, um, and we required that people who attended our first event bring robes, cult robes. Um, mm -hmm. And we, uh, we actually, um, we, had a fundraiser where we were selling, um, where we were having people, giving people the ability to uh, purchase a Rolls Royce for, for the cult, which for those of you who don't know is kind of a shout out to Osho and his cult. Hmm. Um, so anyways, we did incorporate cult components. Right. Okay, well, thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> um, well, I do, I wanna speak to the, uh, the authentically performative and the yeah. sincere ironic Yes. aspects of what you just shared because um there's an element of play and seriousness in you know it's like you're consciously and intentionally implementing cult strategies not to control people so much as to kind of get all the benefits of being in a cult without letting the detriments of being in the cult actually hurt people. So, yes. um, and this is sort of like, this speaks to some, you know, a lot of the alchemy in stuff like you mentioned Shabari and uh, BDSM and, and um, other sort of like extreme forms of sexual play and extreme forms of play in general mm -hmm. um, is turning danger into healing turning something that could be really harmful into something that 
really makes you resilient. So it actually has the opposite effect of harm. Yeah. Uh, my definition of harm is anything that um, that stops the nervous system from developing, from uh, building resilience, you know, that stops like, it in yeah. its tracks or um, causes it to regress. So that would, that would be my definition of harm or abuse. Um, whereas my definition of uh, hurt, right, would be something that does have an impact on the nervous system, but the nervous system, the impact isn't so severe that the nervous system can't um, replenish itself. It can't actually get stronger and move forward. And the next time something of that same intensity happens, it won't be, um, you know, nearly as Right. As so painful. like, so, so hurt in some ways can be, um, can be, can almost be helpful in building resilience. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it just depends whether it goes over that edge of traumatization, re-traumatization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Traumatization or re-traumatization. Um, so yeah. And, um, and, you know, calibrating to each other is, is a huge, is basically the main, I would say difference between those two things, you know, if we're engaging in dangerous play, extreme forms of play. And so I, I would say the difference between a, a cult that is uh, actually dangerous and a cult that is more playful is playfulness. I mean, to be perfectly obvious. Um, what are some other, I'd like to turn this over to you. What are some other um, differences between, you know, a fake cult and an actual cult? Um, so a fake cult is, I think, pretty, pretty easy to spot because, you know, uh, the, a real cult almost never calls themselves a cult. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a real cult will, in fact, say we're not a cult, right? You know, and how, for the, for the most part, and say, um, give all these reasons, reasons why not. Um, uh, however, a fake cult um, takes pride in their cult status, and you know there's there's clearly a tongue-in-cheek nature about it. So that mm -hmm. first of all, that's easy to spot. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how to differentiate, a, maybe you want to. Did you want to talk about how to differentiate a harmful versus like a potentially okay like cult? Yeah. Well, I'll actually. So I'll give a couple examples of um, some some issues within spiritual communities. And I'll, I'll put links to these articles that I'm oh, mentioning yes. in the show notes. I, I skimmed um, through these, yep. Awesome. So um, something recently came to light about the monastic academies practices with um, within their sort of um, organization as, as being um, re relatively harmful, not necessarily because of the actions themselves, but because the people who are uh, trained to facilitate the exercises are not adequately trained to yeah, not trauma exercises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ex the extreme nature of the practices does not match the um, experience of those teaching others to implement the practices. So um, that's another one of those ambiguous territories of like, um, is abuse only um, restricted to people who intend to harm others or Absolutely not. are we all capable of it um yeah. and if we're all capable of it how do we move with that knowing in the world um especially if we're going to be organizing you know the, another example is um something that happened about a year ago at the zag in germany with um this organization called go and change who used psychedelics and developmental stage theory to essentially 
um, dominate people and, and sexually abuse them, which is ultimately a little bit more of a harrowing story. I should probably content warning this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, that I, sounds, I, yeah. Yeah. That sounds a little bit like what have, what was unintentionally happening in Stephen Behrman's stuff in the Bay area that was mm-hmm. uh, shut down recently, but I, I don't need to go off on a tangent there. Let's talk about the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one where you mentioned that, they have this, the, what is it? The Monarch? Monastic Academy. Monastic Academy. That's right. Mm -hmm. They have um, these intense practices, which I remember reading the person who wrote the article said that the, um, at the beginning, although they prefaced, uh, you know, that those with trauma, this, this might be a little, you know, difficult. It could bring it up for you. Mm -hmm. Um, However, um, the, the way that they implemented it is basically a completely ego, a set of practices that was intentionally destructive to the ego, just breaking you down to build you back up like boot camp style, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is a tactic that many cults commonly use, right? Um, and very rarely uh, when it's employed uh, are people given proper warnings surrounding the potential effects of the practices that they're given. And furthermore, the people who are instigating these practices are very rarely trained adequately in how to deal with uh, individuals who have adverse reactions. And so therefore, individuals who have like deep-seated trauma will often go into these um, like super either shut down or um, like actively try to get out or even like fight, but like the response from someone who's not trauma informed is often what is essentially gaslighting, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, oh, either you're not doing the practice well enough. Why don't you just lean into your resistance? You know, if you, if you just sit it out, like it'll, it'll, it'll be fine. Or they'll try to shame the person into compliance mm-hmm. or uh, some other form because the the container is not set up in a way to be able to hold a person who's having a traumatic response and to validate them in it and and allow themselves to remove themselves from it mm-hmm. so that's usually the common problem that i see and, and what i kind of saw happening um in that first case that you were talking about would you agree i would yeah and this reminds me of um something I was reading about recently, which was the sort of relationship between FKA Twigs and Shia LaBeouf. And the kind of, when we um, project the abuser onto uh, others and we don't see how, you know, something as easy as not understanding a trauma response could actually lead you to accidentally abusing someone. Right. Now you don't know that that's what you're doing. And because you don't know that that's what you're doing and you don't see yourself as capable of it, um, then we're in a pickle. Then this is where the murky territory starts to come up. You know, we think that if you're hurting someone, you're doing it because you're a bad person and you want to be hurting them and you enjoy hurting people. And yeah. I think that's ultimately pretty rare. I think that, you know, I that's reserved for the sociopathic or people who, you know, who. Well, um, I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you're differentiating between like they're doing it intentionally versus they enjoy it. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, there's there's you can do something because you enjoy it and still have aspects of it be unintentional, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense, uh, because right. we, often, we often continue in patterns that we 
that we enjoy but don't intend harm. However, knowing that it causes harm and continuing to employ it anyway is, I think, a little, is definitely a little more aware. But yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah, that's, that's ultimately, that's what I meant. The last thing you said. Yep. Um, and yeah, I do appreciate the complexity that you're bringing into this because it is very complex. Um, I yeah. actually, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so just uh, to, to make a little finer point on it also, there's this common, everyone loves to reference the Cartman drama triangle, right? Right. Um, everyone and however, does like to reference that. <laughs> so, but there are people who intentionally create um, trauma responses and ruptures because it is their legitimate belief that through activating a person's victim story, what they're doing doing is allowing them to face it so they can reprogram it and repattern it and not be a victim anymore. Mm -hmm. So it is actually, to some people, they consider it service to, um, uh, to inhabit that perpetrator consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And I think, you know, it takes a lot of skill to be able to do that. And it takes a lot of being able to frame a specific container to be able to do that. I personally would not operate that way. It's too risky for me. Um, but you know, people who people who decide that that's their heal, healer's journey, more power to them because that is some that's a tightrope right there. Um, <laughs> Very easy to get yourself yeah. hung that way. It is, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but that's interesting because um, I think of like Shia LaBeouf and his sort of like troubles and and reading about the story between like what what transpired between him and FKA Twigs and her talking about like the, just his behavior and his original statement and saying like, I've, you know, I, yes, I have, I've hurt a lot of people, including myself. And I, all I can really say is that like, I regret it. Um, and me sort of looking at it and thinking like, wow, no one is asking if Shia LaBeouf is okay <laughs> because you want to distance yourself from that predator archetype. Most people, like they don't want to, address within themselves how they might be in more subtle ways um perhaps enacting that in an unconscious way you know you spoke about doing it in a conscious way in order to create healing you know um but most people are not cap capable of that or are not interested in that and um this has me sort of wanting to scoot the conversation in a very interesting direction if you're right if you're willing to to follow me there let's which go is, um shadow work and um esoteric practices such as like demonology satanism um and the like and uh practicing magic in a way that is you know i think uh these days because of the new age uh white magic quote unquote is more popular than dark magic um i am of the african diaspora which is um a lot of the magical traditions are very non-dual mm -hmm. um where it's like yeah um dark magic and light magic are like kind of two sides of the same coin in those sort of situations mm -hmm. um but in you know more popular western magic a lot of it um sort of sees the dark and the the material and the egoic as somehow um synonymous with with evil and i would argue that it's only synonymous with with evil when it's actually split from its companion of light magic and so i'd love to talk a little bit about using dark magic as a tool for transforming the self um especially the more predatory animal um sadistic or um 
harmful aspects of our of our being. So um, I'm gonna say that uh, I am one of those people that draws um, that draws almost a moral distinction between uh, uh, between and I, I call it black specifically, um, but it, it really is basically consensual versus non-consensual magic. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know I, I'm sure you're familiar with this with this distinction distinction and I'm curious uh, what what to you is the difference between dark and white magic um well dark magic and black magic I think there's a distinction between those as well yeah. <clears throat> so when I say dark magic um I reference new age spirituality specifically because there's a lot of um, conflation of ego and desire with you know a lot of misinterpretation of like Buddhist teachings has led people to um, believe that if your ego wants it, it must not be good for you. Um, desire, you know, you can't be attached to the physical, the spiritual realm is the real world. And so white magic is ultimately self-sacrificing, um, only for the good of others. Um, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hurt people, doesn't get back at anyone, blah, blah, blah. It's basically very, very Christianized. It's very puritanical. Yeah, okay, yeah that makes sense. Whereas black magic, um, is more like, what do you want? Okay, do whatever it takes to get it, you know? And yep. it's not necessarily that you're looking to hurt people, but if someone gets hurt in the process, in some, in some respects, um, if someone gets hurt in the process, that's their karma, Yeah. you know what I mean? So there's a lot more of a like flexibility in the realm of harm with, dark magic whereas black magic is like i'm intentionally going to fuck a bitch up because i can <laughs> because i feel powerful when i hurt like that so that's the distinction there dark magic is more morally ambiguous yeah whereas i would say if we're looking at this through a moral framework um white magic is moral black magic is amoral or immoral no it's immoral and then immoral. dark magic is kind of in the middle yeah sense okay cool that's it's helpful to understand your taxonomy because i know everybody uses these words as if we all have a shared understanding and we really 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 mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i appreciate you asking okay cool and was there a question in this so you want to switch the discussion to how to use these things how do well, you well i'm i'm curious about your personal experience with magic in general and using you know because i like your brand is very dark, but you as a person, I feel are, are mostly just kind of a trickster yeah. style person and you, yep. and you're intentionally putting on the sort of cloak of, in this very Levian way, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. In this very Levian way to sort of like speak to the human shadow, to, 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 to resonate with the human shadow. And then, you know, you call yourself a transformational sorcerer. So I would, I would, I would, I'm curious about well, I'm embodying these archetypes, uh, this archetype for a reason. I believe someone once told me I embody a lot of the energy of Mephistopheles, and I'm like, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> at any rate, my experience with magic, well, gosh, I mean, I had some experience with magic, but the first major magical working that I ever did, like most people's, was a love spell. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, same. So embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it is embarrassing, but mine was particularly uh, was particularly fucked up. So I decided, you know, I'd done like some some magic before and I'd, been, and I'd done a lot of reading. 
and was and was very careful. I'd done some sigil creation and various other things like that, but I decided I was going to do my first full blown like I'm going to knock this one out of the park. So um, I I did a ritual which involved my blood, uh, my semen, and and my tears all to as well as like meditation, chanting, and prayer to infuse a particular sigil. Um, which I then gave to somebody else. So um, what what essentially ensued? That's so dramatic. Yeah, uh, there, I've actually have a, um, a friend who calls me the Swamp King. Um, <laughs> like that? Uh, yeah, just because you know I I do have a taste for the dramatic. But anyway, so uh, the, I mean there was. A blessing and a curse because on the one hand this person totally owned my life for the next um uh, well quite a long period of time and it's it's taken uh years to recover from the trauma that was incurred as a result of giving like my life force away to another person essentially in a symbolic ritualized manner mm-hmm. um <laughs> You live and learn, so, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, it really helped me understand the nature and power of magic, and and particularly to differentiate between you know um, different ways of infusing uh, your your intentions. Right? I just put, let's put all of them at once. Mm-hmm. All this one thing and uh, give it to someone else. Great idea. Uh, mm-hmm. But my experience since then has been. Uh, of continually practicing magic and like seeing results, but then ultimately my creations, uh, a lot of, they've been really powerful, but they've all eventually disintegrated, right? And I, at a certain point, I had to ask myself why, right? Because ultimately you are, you know, the common denominator in all of your experiences. So I had to ask myself, what was I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. And I came to terms with the fact that after some serious self-inquiry that um, what, what was happening was that my intent, the, my words, my intent, and my being were not aligned. So what I had to do was essentially shadow work. So I um, have devoted my experience and my life, um, at least in recent uh, years, to uh, doing as much shadow work as I possibly can. Um, and, uh, and also since doing shadow work is a very vulnerable thing, surrounding myself with a community of people who are also really energized and interested to work with the unconscious and shadow. work. So that's kind of where mm-hmm. I am in my journey as a practitioner right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yeah, so far it's mm-hmm. working out great. Uh, that's why I created the dreaming society, uh, which is my current project. And Mm-hmm. Um, I'm finding it to be a really nourishing practice of self-love. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you a little bit about the dreaming society actually. And, um, my question around, you know, dreams as a, you know, practice of shadow work or, or spiritual practice in general, interpreting one's dreams, um, I'm really interested in the relationship between our dreams and the concept of liberation. And so I remember one of my most harrowing dreams uh, more recently was um, a content warning (laughs) again. Um, I was being chased around an institution. It was a school, it was an elementary school that I worked at. 
and I was being chased. I was being stalked by a witch and she was like 10 foot tall, like skin and bones. She looked like she had been on fire. Um, her skin was just charred a witch. And she was trying to set me on fire. The end of the dream, I decided to set myself on fire just to not give her the satisfaction. (laughs) And I literally felt like my body was on fire and that's what woke me up. So dreams like that are important to pay attention to um, as a magic practitioner, even more so than as a non-magic practitioner in general, I'd say. But if you are consciously and intentionally practicing magic, if you identify as a witch or a transformational sorcerer, you have a dream like that, you know, pay attention, pay attention. Right. Exactly. Because some shit went down after I had that dream. Yeah. <laughs> some, some shit went down and I was like, Oh, okay. Um, so yeah. What do dreams have to do with, with liberation, with integration? Well, I mean, I think the very first and most obvious thing is that, um, it, it is incredibly important for any magical practitioner to understand their, how, how they relate, where they are situated um, within uh, the collective unconscious. Um, so, and, and within their social context as well. Some people practice magic thinking that just by, just by like doing the particular things in the particular order, they're going to get results. But really it's about expanding the consciousness, expanding the awareness so that your will and your intent um, will have more of an effect. And in order to do that, you need to connect with, um, uh, you know, the the archetypes that are showing up for you. Understand the archetypes that you embody and that you desire to embody. Understand your relationship uh, with other humans and and the world in general. And there is no better way to uncover that which you do not see about these things than through examination of your dreams. Um, and it's something that most people don't spend a lot of time on. Uh, the, the role of the shaman, the witch, the sorcerer, the whatever, is to peer and to see those things which others look away from, right? Um, and so your dreams actually, the way I like to say it is like, uh, each dream is a mushroom that, that has sprouted from the mycelia, um, the mycelial network that connects all humans together, Right. And, and, it, and it's like, it is the one expression of a broader web that is going on that you don't, you can't see with your eyes, but is processed and internalized by your system and the system of other humans around you. And each one has a particular um, message for you. Um, mm-hmm. So I believe that dreaming is inherently a magical practice because it works with the unseen forces that connect all of us on a subconscious level. And if you're not interested in that, then frankly, I don't think that you, that you can be authentically interested in spiritual. Well, you can be authentically interested in spirituality, but like your ability to practice magic is going to be um, not, not very great. Cause you're not really mm-hmm. looking at yourself. There's half of your experience. You're not wanting to experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said. I would say, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and gatekeep right along with you and say that, um, yeah, esoteric spirituality um, seems to, maybe not all of spirituality, but specifically um, ritual magic-based esoteric spirituality 
um, is highly symbolic mm -hmm. and um, requires uh, an immersion in the imaginal. And you spend at least eight hours, God hoping you spend at least eight hours per day. I know some of us are not so lucky. Six you spend, last night. You spend six to, oh, I'm sorry. You spend six to 10 hours if you, you know, are, are able slash willing to take good care of yourself. Yeah. Um, immersed in the imaginal. Um, and you spend, you know, the rest of your time working for the man. So you may as well, <laughs> yeah. you know, look, look at yourself and really, you know, cultivate a sense of intimacy with your imagination. Um, the only thing that I would say is more important than that as a, as a ritual practitioner is to, um, these days have a, um, like an adequate sense-making system that doesn't, um, try to suppress or invalidate the imaginal, but keeps it in check so that you, you know, i I have so many stories of how delusional I've gotten in this process. And um, oh, yeah. it's, it's a real risk. Um, a friend of mine says uh, madness is absolutely an outcome when I, practicing magic. Absolutely. I, and I think that um, there, it's almost an initiation for most people on a, on a spiritual or magical path that at some point they have to have some, something that others that, that, you know, the default world, so to speak, would classify as a psychotic break. You thank know, god yeah most people have at least one of those yeah at least one yeah yeah i think i think i've had more than one i, I, I it's I, safe to say i've maybe had more than three so mm -hmm. yeah i'm the real deal ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh okay wow um i think we're at about an hour um so I don't know. I, I'm all out of questions for you, but is there anything else, you know, any, any cool groups you want to plug while, yeah. while I still have so, you? <laughs> if you, if you're watching this and you've kind of liked my expression or the trip that I'm on, you can, um, I have a community that I'm in, in that I've created that is expanding called the dreaming society. And you can check it out either at the dreaming society.com or wtfdyw.com what the fuck do you want um dot com so either one will work or you can just if you want to chat uh hit me up on facebook or i'm, mm -hmm. I'm on instagram as well but i don't use it as much um and i'd probably be happy to uh say hi so awesome yeah i'll make sure to make all of those things available in the show notes if you'd like to speak to michael author um thank you very much again for joining me today this was this was really great and I, uh yeah. yeah, I've been uh, wanting an excuse to talk with you for a while, Scout. So thank you for giving me the opportunity and um, more to come. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Oscillator's Stone podcast featuring Michael Author. For more of Michael's work, check the links in the show notes and stay tuned for next week's episode, which will feature my dad, Zekru Haru, on emergent ritual expression in the African diaspora. You can sign up for the Oscillator Stone newsletter and get future episodes sent to your email at scoutreinawiley.substack.com. Thanks again. Bye.